Well, I want to welcome you to Reliance Church. As I said during announcements, I am Pastor Ted, one of the pastors here. We're going to be in 1 John this morning, if you'll open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. And if you were here last week, we, uh, we talked about living for the coming of the Lord. Jesus warned in Luke's gospel that he's coming when we least expect it. He said this in Luke chapter 12, know this. That if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. And all the gun owners in Temecula say, Amen. Uh, Therefore, Jesus said, You also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And again, in Luke's gospel, Jesus warned, Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell in the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore, Jesus said, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And in light of this truth. We asked the question last week, we pondered this, if the Lord were to return today, would, be, would we be ready for the Lord's return? And indeed, the day is fast approaching when each of us will stand before God. And while no man knows the day or the hour, Jesus said that there would be certain signs that, that we could look to. And indeed, last week we examined many of those signs and and discussed them. One of the signs that we talked about last week was earthquakes. And you'll recall recall that I I shared with you that uh, five of the top ten earthquakes uh, in all of recorded human history have occurred within the last ten years. Make that six. Four days after last Sunday's message, you all watched the news. You've seen the story, no doubt. Japan suffering an 8.9 magnitude earthquake. There's some debate now whether it was 9.0. They themselves have revised it up to 9.0. At any rate, the news is now reporting that this is the fifth largest earthquake in human history. Happened right in our lifetime. And of course, we saw the images unfolding live on our television sets, the horrible tsunami, and seen that great wave roll in. I was in Banda Aceh uh, for uh, the after effects of the tsunami. We went there as part of a relief team uh, and, uh, and physically walked through the devastation of Banda Aceh. And seeing those pictures, it just brought back so many memories of, of you know, all of those things. And, you know, I point this out to you not to say, I told you so but to say that Jesus told us so. He did. He said these things would happen. We studied it just last week, and four days after sharing the message, in that, hey, we've seen five of the top ten earthquakes in all recorded human history just in the last ten years, and Jesus said it would be that way, and Jesus said that they would increase in the last times, and indeed, four days later, the very next one, fifth largest in all of human history, strikes. Jesus is coming back. 
He is. And the time is short. And, guys, unfortunately, these things that we see in the, in the, the earthquake that, that uh, Japan suffered through, uh, there, there will be more. There are more coming. And they will grow, just like birth pangs. They will come closer together, and they will be more and more intense. And so the idea here is that, listen, the, we do live in the last days. We do need to be ready. We do need to be prepared. And John exhorts us here in, in 1 John uh, that if we want to be confident and unashamed at the Lord's coming, then we must abide in Jesus Christ. We must abide in Him. Now, the point that John goes on to emphasize and the point that we are going to dwell on this morning, the point that we're going to study, uh, is not only that it's imperative that we live for the coming of the Lord, but also we have to live for the Lord that is coming. Let me say that again. Not only do we need to live for the coming of the Lord, but we need to live for the Lord who is coming. And there's a critical distinction between the two. You see, one focuses on being prepared in our faith for events yet to come. The other focuses on being proactive in our faith right now, today. Let me illustrate this point. I, I used to be friends with a guy who obsessed about end times prophecy. And, and he could tell you all the prophecies in Daniel and in Ezekiel and Revelation. And he was just completely consumed and obsessed by this. But in the day-to-day aspects of his faith, the faith in Jesus Christ that he professed, um, where he was a biblical scholar, A-plus scholar, as far as it pertained to end times prophecy, he was a D-minus student in terms of an everyday Christian, in terms of exercising love for others, in terms of exercising personal holiness, in terms of honoring God with his day-to-day actions, uh, exercising an ongoing abiding relationship with Jesus Christ in these day-to-day disciplines that we are called to as Christians to exercise, he was severely lacking. He was not unlike the the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Jesus was chastising the Pharisees one day, and he said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. In other words, he's like, you search the scriptures, look for eternal life, and I'm standing right in front of you, and you completely miss me. And the exact same way that these Pharisees had lost sight of their Savior, of their Messiah, so my friend had lost sight of his Messiah. And so we see the signs being fulfilled in our lifetime. Jesus Jesus said they would come. They're coming. We see them. We should not be surprised. We take note that Jesus is at the door. He's coming soon. And we do well to do those things. And we do well to say, hey, I need to focus on getting myself ready because he's about to return. And yes, all that is true. But at the same time, in all of our getting ready, we cannot forget that we need right now to be boots-on-the-ground Christians in the world in which we live. Can I get an amen out of that? We, we need to be those that love one another, that obey the Lord day by day. We need to be those that obediently serve as the hands and feet 
of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As he has saved us and come to take residence in us, he wants to work through us to our neighbors, to our friends, to our co-workers, to our family. This is the, 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 the exhortation of Scripture to us. And so, yeah, we keep one eye on the, on the future. We keep one eye on the signs. And we say, I've got to be ready for the Lord's return. But we keep another eye on our boots on the ground, day-by-day operations, and go, what kind of a Christian am I living? What kind of a Christian am I being? The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3.11 kind of summed this all up in this verse. He said, therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, referring to the, the earth and, and everything's going to dissolve in a fervent heat, the Bible says eventually. And Peter says, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? In other words, yeah, the Lord's coming. That ought to affect how you live right now. So with that in mind, we're going to resume. We left off, at, we, we finished through uh, chapter 3, verse 3, but I want to pick it up in verse 3, just in context. Verse 3 uh, of chapter 3, the apostle John says this. He says, and everyone who has this hope in him, the hope of Jesus Christ return and are being sealed with his Holy Spirit. We've surrendered our life in faith to Christ and, and, and Jesus promised that he would return. And so everyone who has that hope that he's returning for his church in him, John says, purifies himself just as he is pure. I want to be ready for the Lord's return. That's, that's what he says here. Verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Now, if you are a note taker, that word commits there, very significant word. It, in the Greek tense, this is a continual tense. The, the, the fear, if you, if you read this, if you're the uninitiated, you have a New King James Version or King James Version, and you read through and you say, whoever commits sin commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness, and then it's going to go on, and we're going to see that the Apostle John will say that, you know, whoever sins is of the devil. And so there's a temptation there in reading that to go, whoa, wait, whoa, wait a minute. Are you saying that if I'm a Christian... That, that I, that I should, should be beyond sinning, and that if I sin, I should question whether or not I'm a Christian? No, that, that's not exactly what he's saying. What he's, what he's saying in the tense, the, the verb tense of this word in the Greek, it, it's, it speaks to a continual, ongoing uh, sinning process. The, this is a, an indication where the English Standard Version translates this text the best. Let me read it to you in the English Standard Version. It says, John says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. So in other words, John's talking about a person whose pattern of life, whose practice of life is that of a sinful nature. Somebody who, who habitually lives in a sinful state. Now, I'm sorry to break it to you, but there are those who call themselves Christians who fall into this category. Maybe you've met them. Maybe you know them. There are those that, that profess a saving faith in Christ, but their actions belie what their mouth professes. And we need to be very careful that we don't fall into that camp. That, that I have a profession of Christ, but that my actions are completely different. We need to take heed as to how we live. Now, Paul describes this type of person 
whose actions don't line up with what they profess. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, this way, he, he he describes them as someone who has their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And so we need to be careful that our conscience is not seared, that, that we are not one of those who, who says one thing and who lives habitually in a different way. Now, John says here that sin is lawlessness. Do you see that there in verse 4? Sin is lawlessness. Have you ever noticed that people seldom call sin, sin? You ever notice that? They have, a, they have another name for it. They have another label for it. They have a convenient excuse for it. But there are, are, are many who won't bring themselves to confess that what they're engaged in is actually sin. Several, who's old enough here to remember the L.A. riots? Who, you were watching it on television. Most Okay, great. I should have figured first service. I'll ask that in second service and nobody... Back in the, what was the, the, the mid-80s, uh, Rodney King uh, was, was beaten by the LAPD as, as he was being arrested. And they, somebody got video footage of it. And, and so, um, you know, the, the police officers uh, went on trial for, for beating him. And the, the allegation, the, the charge against them was that they had used excessive force. So they went on trial, and in this trial, they were found innocent. And as soon as the verdict came down that these LAPD officers were found innocent, South Central Los Angeles exploded. It just went nuts. And, uh, you know, there were people out in the streets rioting and so on. And Reginald Denny was driving his 18-wheeler through South Central LA. They stopped his truck. They drug him out. They beat him unconscious within an inch of his life. He was on a ventilator in the hospital. And it just got worse from there. Stores were looted. Stores were burned. We were watching video footage on the news of, uh, you know, a, a liquor store owner, a Korean liquor store owner in a gun battle with some of these people there in, in South Central Los Angeles. It was horrible. And in the middle of all this, I'll never forget, there was a TV crew that was out there in, in the midst of this, and they were interviewing several of the individuals that were involved in this rioting and in this, in this carnage, really. Uh, and uh, they were standing outside of a Target store. And the Target store had, had been looted, looters running in and out, and, and they're, they're filming all this, and and they're talking to this, this group of people that had been involved in this. And one of the people there said this. They said, this is justice for our community. This is payback time. And as I sat and I watched that, I said, no, this is not justice, sir. This is lawlessness. And in the same way that this man called his lawless actions justice and payback, um, many today have convenient names for their lawlessness. God made me this way. This is my genetic predisposition. This is just who I am, we hear people say. And, and oh, if I had a dollar for every time somebody told me, God knows my heart, right? And, and you know, my most, two of my most recent uh, experiences with that statement. God knows my heart. The person's involved in a serious lifestyle sin. They're professing faith in Christ and we're calling them on it. 
And the, the Bible says that, that if your brother's caught in sin, you who are spiritual is to restore such a one. And so going to them saying, what are you doing? Look at this sin in your life. You're involved in this and it's habitual. It's ongoing. You're, you're living in fornication and you've chosen to do it. What are, you, what are you thinking about? Well, you know what? God knows my heart. I just want to throw up when I hear those words. And so does the Lord. You know, it's, it's like, man, can you just confess your sin? Because if you will confess it as sin and repent of it, God tells us in, in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he'll be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if you take the attitude that says, oh, God knows my heart, well, you know what? Yeah, I think he does. There's a section in here that says, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? That, is that the heart we're talking about? Yeah, God knows your heart. You're a sinner. Repent. Turn from your wicked ways. And, and so we have these convenient names. But John says, hey, whoever commits sin is committing lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Let's call it what it is. Now, I want to contrast this with the very next verse. John does. In verse 5, he says this. He says, and you know that he, speaking of Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins. And in him, there is no sin. John's making this, this stark contrast here. He's, he's juxtaposing one against the other. And he says, look, he, he says, look, Jesus came to take away sins in him. There is no sin. So what does that say about a person who's making a practice of sinning? Hey, Jesus came to take it away. If you're in him, there is no habitual ongoing sin. But if you're living in a lifestyle of sin, if, you're, if you've got a serial practicing of sin, well, can a person abide in two places at the same time? That's my question for you. Yes or no? No. You can't abide. We went through abiding last week, what abiding means. You can't abide in two relationships at the same time. It's incompatible. And Jesus said as much in Matthew chapter 6. He said, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, Jesus said. And just in case there's any doubt, verse 6 makes it abundantly clear. John, go, John continues, whoever abides in him does not sin. And again, reading in the Greek tense, he's talking about a continual practice. So when it says does not sin, it means doesn't continue in his sin. That's literally what this means in the Greek. Whoever sins, John continues, has neither seen him nor known him. Whoever continues unabated in their sinful practices, regardless of what they profess, it's how they live. And if a person is living in habitual sin, John says, hey, if you're abiding in sin and not abiding in Christ, then that suggests that you've never truly seen the Lord and that you don't really know the Lord. Those are some tough words. This is God's word. This isn't the opinion of Pastor Ted. 
This is, this is the Apostle John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, saying, listen, if you abide in sin, then you're not abiding in Christ. And if that's the case, maybe you don't know him. Maybe you don't know him. Heavy stuff. Doesn't matter what you profess with your mouth. Matters how you live. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, grace that does not change your life will not save your soul. Grace that doesn't change your life will not change your soul. And so I ask you, will not save your soul. I ask you the question, are you living a changed life? Or are you professing one thing with your mouth and living another way? Your actions. John says, no one whose life is in a continual sin mode has either seen Christ or known him. That, that word known there in your text in verse 6, not known him. If, you, if you're a note taker, you could circle that. that. That word known in the Greek, it's gnosko. And it, it speaks of a personal, intimate, experiential knowledge of the Lord. Turn to uh, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, as you're making your way there, the Apostle Paul is, is talking to those in Philippi, those who profess faith in Christ. And he's exhorting them. He's saying, look, don't trust in your flesh. Trust in God. And so he begins to, to make his point, explain and express his, his whole pedigree, everything that, that all of his religious experience. He, he, he gives him his resume, so to speak. And he says, look, here's all of my qualifications to, to be, you know, a, 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 an apostle. Here's all of my qualifications to be a, a holy man, a religious man. And, and having done that, he says, we pick it up in verse 7, but what things were gained to me, I've counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of, of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him, Paul says. And that word know is the same Greek word, gnosis. It's gnoso. It's that I may know him, this intimate, this personal knowledge, this abiding knowledge, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained, Paul continues, or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. 
Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward towards those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's something in the heart of man that wants to walk by sight. Everything in us wants to walk by sight. Guys, you know this. You sit down, you start putting together, you know, whatever it is, a a budget or a plan for your family or whatever it is that you're leading. You want to know how it's all going to work out. I want to know, you know, A, B, C. I want to see it all. And the the fact of the matter is, is that God doesn't work that way. As a matter of fact, God works quite opposite of that. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please Him. You see, what God is looking for is that we wouldn't walk by sight, but that we would walk by faith. Everything in me, in my flesh, wants to walk by sight. I want to know how it's all going to work out. I want to know how it's all going to be figured out. We sang together today, you make all things work together for my good. Romans 8, 28. In all things, God works together for the good to those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. And so what happens, and we have that promise, because God will show up and He'll do something in our life that's unexpected, which is what He always does. And when He does something that's unexpected in our life, our temptation is to say, oh, that my life is falling apart and everything's wrong. And, and God's promise is, no, everything's not wrong. Things might be going wrong, but... Through faith in Jesus Christ, as I walk to please Him, He promises that He will work all things together for my good. That doesn't mean that all things are good. There's some very, very bad things that happen because we are sinners living in a sinful, fallen world. But God's promise is that He's greater than our circumstances and that He will make all things work together for the good of those that that love Him, those that trust Him, those who walk by faith and not by sight. This is the whole idea that, that Paul's conveying here. He's like, don't trust in the flesh. Walk by faith in Him. Just, just trust the Lord and walk by faith. There was uh, an issue in Ladies Home Journal. It was the September 1981 issue. And they asked this question. The, the question was, in whom do you trust? 40% of those who responded said Walter Cronkite. The newscaster of the day. We trust. Who do you trust, Walter Cronkite? In who? Not just who do you trust. In who are you putting your trust in? Walter Cronkite got forty percent of the vote. Pope John Paul got twenty six percent of the vote that year. Billy Graham got six percent of the vote that year. Who do you think got three percent of the vote? God. God got three percent of the vote. Who? Who do you trust? In whom do you trust? Now, why did God only get 3% of the vote? Because they didn't know him. Because they didn't know him. Yesterday, we had a birthday party for my granddaughter, Willow. She was a one-year birthday party. And her great-grandmother, Reba, was there. So we handed Willow to Reba. What do you think Willow did? She started crying. Why? She doesn't know her. She doesn't know who she is. Now, uh, her, her 
dad, um, Willow's father, Ben, he's, he's deployed right now. He's, he's on a nuclear submarine. And uh, his brother was there. Now, Willow doesn't really know Ben's brother either. I mean, she's seen him, but it's been, you know, many, many months. But he sounds just like his dad when he talks. And he very closely resembles him. And so what do you think Willow did when he showed up? It was, it was, it was the cutest thing and the saddest thing all at once. She, she saw him, and she just kept hugging him and laying her head down on him. She thought her daddy was home. And the idea here and the reason these people, you know, in whom do you place your trust, they, they have so much trouble, because they don't know him. And God wants you to know him. He wants you to trust him with your life. And, and, and this is in, in, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, or verse uh, uh, 6. When John is saying, whoever abides in him does not sin, but whoever sin has never seen him or known him. See, people fall into sin just because they don't know God. That's the problem. That's the issue. You guys will remember the story in Luke's gospel. Jesus talked about the prodigal son. He told this parable, right? And the prodigal son went to his father. And he said, give me my inheritance now. And, and his dad gave him his inheritance, and he went out and he blew it. And spent it all carousing, high living, partying, made all kinds of friends when he was rich. And then everything, he lost everything, everybody left him, and now he's destitute, he's hungry, he's poor. But what happened with him? In that state, the world having its way with him, he remembered his father. As a matter of fact, the text says, but when he came to himself, He said, I will arise and go to my father. And I think perhaps maybe some here today, you would fit in that category. As I'm talking about, look, are you abiding in Christ? Are you you abiding in sin? You're going to either fall into one of two categories if that's you. You either are professing faith that you've never really had, and you've never really truly surrendered your life to the Lord, or you're that prodigal who's gone your way. And maybe today would be the day that you, like this prodigal son, come to yourself. And that you would remember, hey, he's my father. And I can go back to him. I can trust him. You know him today. Now, here back in in 1 John, we pick up in verse 7. And John says this. He says, little children... Let no one deceive you. Now, why would he say that? Because the enemy wants to deceive us. There are many that are trying in a concerted effort to deceive us. And the the deception of this day, as John was writing this, it was a group of guys called the Gnostics. The Gnostic means special knowledge. And, And they were teaching in their special knowledge that, hey, among other things, your flesh is evil. And so it doesn't matter what you do with your flesh. It only matters what you do with your with your spirit. It's a convenient theology to, to, to live like hell, right? But, but again, John says, look, you, you don't let anybody deceive you. He says, he who practices righteousness is righteous. If it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck, right? If you're a Christian, it's going to come out in how you live. This is what he says. There's fruit, He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He, meaning Jesus. 
Verse 8, he who sins is of the devil. And again, this in the verb structure is he who continues in sin. It's not a one-time thing, but a lifestyle thing. He whose lifestyle is, of, is sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Listen, you who is caught up in sin, and you call yourself a Christian, Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan. And so who are you to continue in that thing that Jesus Christ, your professed Lord and Savior, came to destroy? We need to be those that say, God, give me your heart. What you weep over, let me weep over. What you are detested, uh, what detests you, let it detest me. We need to have this heart. This is what John is saying here. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And he says in verse 9, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, doesn't continue in sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin. Because he has been born of God. His seed remains in him. What, is, what, what does this mean? Well, turn to Matthew chapter 13. As we get ready to draw to a close here. Matthew chapter 13. Here in Matthew's gospel, Jesus gives a parable to his disciples. We know it as the parable of the sower. And it says this, beginning in verse 3, he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them, but others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now his disciples came up to him afterwards. I'm going to paraphrase the next verses. And basically they came up to him and said, why do you always got to talk in parables? In other words... We don't get it, you know. Uh, And uh, they're not the sharpest knives in the drawer, which gives us all hope. And so Jesus, in verse 18, he explains it. He says, Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. Verse 20, But he who received the seed on stony places... This is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. He goes on. Now, he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground, Jesus continues, is he who hears the word and understands it, 
who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And so back now in 1 John, there in verse uh, 3, 9, when he says, whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. This is the picture that this means. This means that the seed of God's word has found good soil in your heart. That you, you, his seed remains in you. The birds haven't snatched it away. It hasn't been choked out by the cares and the concerns of this world. But it's found rich, fertile soil in your heart, and it's taking root. And Jesus said, in that state, it will produce fruit. Several years ago, I took a time management seminar, and they, they had a, an activity that they had you do to, to see how you use your time. And, and they said, what, what you need to do is write down everything that you value. Write down everything that are your top values. And then take your, your calendar, your, your whatever time management system you're using now, and see how they line up. Do they match up? And what you find in this, in this exercise is, is a thing that they call the tyranny of the urgent. And the urgent always threatens those things that you value. And so what happens is we end up giving our time and our attention and our focus and our resources to the urgent things in our life that we don't really value and the things that we truly value get pushed to the wayside. And as we close, I just want to encourage you that this same principle applies spiritually. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, I'll put it on the screen for you in the New Living Translation. It says this. It says, examine yourselves to see if your faith is really genuine. Test yourselves. If you cannot tell that Jesus Christ is among you, it means you have failed the test. And as you know, at the end of every service, we partake of communion. Jesus exhorted that we should partake of communion often as believers. And one of the things we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is that before we partake of communion, a man must first examine himself. Because we do not want to partake in another unworthy manner, the Bible says. Now, Partaking in an unworthy manner doesn't mean that I deserve to take this and I've done all these good things and, you know, I, I was a Boy Scout and helped somebody across the street. It doesn't mean any of that. Now, an unworthy manner means that we approach the body and the blood of Jesus Christ without remembering what it stands for. And examining ourselves is examining ourselves just in light of 2 Corinthians 13.5 Are we in the faith? Do we have a profession of godliness, but are we really truly being those people that that are living one way and, and professing something different? Guys, I don't want you to be deceived. The Lord doesn't want you to live that way. And so as we approach the communion table today, this is your opportunity to examine yourself, to to test yourself. And if you can't tell that Jesus Christ is among you, the Bible says you failed the test. This is a great time for you to be able, if you're that prodigal, to be able to just come before the Lord and say, Lord, I've wandered and I return. I return right now because I have known you and I know you're good and I know that I can trust you. As we watch the television and we see those images coming in 
And as I sat there mesmerized as the pictures were coming through live on that first night, and I watched this wall of, you couldn't even call it water really, it was just black. And it just looked like Satan himself just coming. And there was this truck that was driving and you see this, this water and you're like, dude, turn, turn, turn. And he didn't turn. And the water just consumed that truck and it proceeded another six miles inland. And you can only imagine, there's no way that guy made it out. It's a vivid reminder that Jesus Christ is coming soon. Nobody has, none, one of us knows the day or the hour when we will stand before the Lord and we'll give an account of our life. Life's a vapor, the Bible says. Something's here for a little while and it's gone. And so my exhortation for you as we partake of communion together now is that you do business with God. For the love of God, do business with Him. Don't be found apart from Him. Don't be separated from Him. If you've, if you've been away, if you've been a prodigal, come back. If you've professed one thing and lived another your whole life, commit today to surrender your life. Lordship of Christ. Amen.